Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Hello, everybody. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners with our Momenta podcast, where we interview some of the, the most interesting people and thoughtful people in, in technology, connected industry, and, uh, and business. Uh, today, uh, my guest is David Bauer, who is, uh, is, is currently a... Um, managing partner at at Sandhill East but uh, I've known Dave for uh, for a number of years, and he was uh, when we originally met. He was a uh, he was the chief security officer at Merrill Lynch at a time when IT security. Well, I, whether there has never been a time that IT security was incredibly important, but uh, Dave bought uh, brought a rich array of insights and experience to the role, and and really accomplished an enormous amount at a large organization with some uh, some rather uh, daunting security challenges. Challenges and uh, security for anybody who's in in any business, whether it's uh, Internet of Things, whether it's industrials, uh, whether it's whether it's financial services and banking, uh, is almost always top of mind. And and David is one of my favorite people to uh, you know who and and most understandable and articulate in in talking about the uh, kind of the problems that people face and 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 a lot of the challenges and uh, that are that are overcome and then really creative ways of thinking about security as well. So uh, with that, I'd like to like to welcome you to the podcast, Dave. Thank you very much, Ed. Nice to be here. Great. So I'd just like to start a bit by, um, by having you share a bit of your, of your background, what, you know, what brought you to security and, and, and really provide a bit of a, uh, share a little bit of the career arc that that's, that's brought you to to where you are today. Uh, Sure. So, uh, this morning, when I was I was thinking before the webinar, thinking back to my career, I looked up. I started thinking or working in information security in uh, as long ago as 1987. So it's uh, almost 31 years. Um, at that time, I I took a position uh, doing some research in intrusion detection at Bell Communications Research, which was the R&D arm for um, all the regional Bell operating companies, the local phone companies back then. And um, there wasn't, most of the literature, or most of what you could find about information security was with some uh, industry bulletins and a lot of research. And uh, not long after that, um, the regional Bell operating companies had a significant number of public uh, intrusions into the network, some of which are documented in books like The Watchmen um, or The Masters of Destruction, um, which which I was involved in in, in those incidents. And um, yeah, you know, I learned a lot back then um, that um, the the nature of of uh, computer hackers or those that want to break those systems. You know that part hasn't really changed in 31 years. They're they're still an enemy and they're still a target. Um, just the the enemies have changed and the targets have changed. Um, and uh, a, a seminal incident during uh, that time at, at Bell Communications Research was 
the Morris Worm of 1988, uh, kind of the first well-publicized, uh, self-replicating piece of software, uh, which found its way into, um, at that time, uh, a large number of systems, Unix systems, which are connected to the internet, um, including Bell Communications Research and phone companies and a lot of research institutions and so on. And that, that was probably one of the most interesting events of all of computer security because it raised a number of interesting questions. And many of those we grapple with today. Um, so, so that, that worm was uh, self-replicated because of a flaw in some software that ran the Unix systems. And, and, um, and the questions it raised were the following. Why didn't the vendors tell us about these flaws? Because they knew about them, or did they know about them? And if they did, why didn't they tell us about this? Why didn't we have any way of being alerted with quickly with what the issue was and how do we, how do we fix our systems? Um, why don't we have anybody responsible for making sure our system's up to date? The patching problem we, we grapple with today. Um, why isn't there any government agencies that are providing oversight and assistance to industries? Um, why don't we have standards for our systems, training for individuals? Why is it that everybody has all their computers just connected to the internet without any security boundaries between? All of this was brought out to light in, in kind of one instant and, and caused this tremendous effort um, some and much of this we, we're, we're seeing today um, either has been addressed or um, or still remains a, a challenge. Um, uh, from my own experience at, at Bell Communications Research, the regional Bell operating companies asked us to go to technology vendors and have them come up with a statement about how they dealt with security flaws and come up with standards for them on how they would interconnect their systems together to be more secure and to work with the government. I, I placed a, one of my staff at NIST for a year to create uh, some of the first early standards that were published for computer security. So, um, uh, so it was a very interesting time then and we see the effects, uh, we see the effects now. Um, and I'm sure you have a bunch of questions about that. It was kind of an well, interesting absolutely. period and, and of time. <laughs> um, well, I, but, it's an, and it's amazing that one just one incident can provide that uh, you know ended up having such such major repercussions, but it's but it wasn't the first it wasn't the last either right it, it wasn't it wasn't the first but it was the most well publicized um, and it certainly wasn't the last uh, there's been many you know many incidents that have that have uh, uh, that have occurred since then uh, with 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 varying degrees of 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 um, you know of impact. Um, but then I, you know, sort of after that, and uh, I took a job as the one of the first chief information security officers on Wall Street at Morgan Stanley. Um, and, you know, that was sobering because I went from kind of a research and development uh, advisory uh, uh, kind of position that had a huge impact, I think, on, on the industry to being responsible for uh, you know, for the security, the technology security of a major financial services company. What struck me most about about that position at the time in 1994 was, um, you know, like most financial institutions, there was, uh, you know, we had thousands 
of distributed computers, uh, mostly Sun at that time, um, and a large mainframe. And the mainframe, IBM mainframe, had very good security because that had been built in in in, uh, in the mainframe operating systems for years. But there were very little tools available for uh, you know for the rest of the environment. And I, I, in addition to security, I led the team that launched Morgan Stanley's very first internet website. And um, and we were quite concerned uh, about the security of, of our website. It, uh, it's not like the websites you see today with online trading and, and, and all of that, but still it, it, it was a reflection. If we had a security incident, uh, that would have been a reflection, not just on Morgan Stanley, but I think on the industry as a whole using tools like the internet to disseminate information. This was in 1995. There were very few corporate websites uh, mm. available. Now, I was explaining to someone just maybe a week ago and saying, you know, you know, you, you don't think about it, but of course there was a time when companies didn't have websites and now you wouldn't, now that of course you, you wouldn't think that, but there was a time and, and somebody had to launch the first ones and, and there, uh, and we had to, uh, essentially build our own firewalls from uh, Intel machines and stripped down operating systems and wrote our own firewall rules and and we wrote our own uh, protected interpreters and and hardened our web servers all on our own because uh, you couldn't buy that stuff back then. But we still uh, cared a lot about security. And what was interesting about that is the questions did come from executive management who 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 had to be educated about the internet and what the business was trying to do with the launch of the first website. But the questions did come uh, from, from the executive management business about, you know, does this represent a risk to the firm and how do we protect against that? And I found myself uh, in discussions with senior business people at Morgan Stanley explaining to them what the risks were and what we were doing to protect the company. Um, and so that insight was very interesting that, that even then uh, people perceived that interconnectivity would bring additional risk to the company and ask questions about um, uh, how how that would be uh, how that would be protected. Um, I was in that position for several years. Uh, later, I moved to Merrill Lynch as the Chief Information Security and Privacy Officer. That was in 2001. Um, the interesting thing about about that role was, in addition to being the chief information security officer and all of that uh, that that brought with it, was I also took on the role of privacy officer, which today is typically found in the general counsel's office, not not associated with chief information security officers. And and at that time, um, I, you know, I, my team developed uh, our, you know, our first privacy policy, or notice of privacy practices that we that we had on the website, a, a privacy incident response plan, um, and you know, a way of thinking about uh, privacy as an aspect of uh, you know, a characteristic that a customer would want us to provide for them, the privacy of their information, the ability to tell them what we were doing with their information, and having a way to kind of think about uh, uh, privacy instance. And, and that, was, that, was, that was a new thing as well. 
Um, most of my peers were not the privacy officers yet or hadn't, or perhaps their companies hadn't thought about it, but, but I think Merrill Lynch was a, was a bit ahead there. Um, and I was in that role for several years. Uh, some notable things that, that got uh, attention during that time is I was the first Wall Street company to outsource an aspect of security beyond, say, guards. Um, I hired VeriSign to uh, manage and monitor our firewalls and all of their intrusion detection systems. The thought process I had was um, VeriSign ran global DNS, and they had a better view on all the traffic going on on the Internet than anybody in the world. And I felt that if they were monitoring uh, our external uh, defenses in managing them and combine that with their view of um, what else, what other activity they're seeing uh, on the internet. And they had some data to show for for various malware attacks and others that they were able to see that before anybody else because they could see the DNS traffic and the internet traffic. And uh, it was so novel at the time it made the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and some of my peers called up and said, how could you do that? You need to keep it in a house. I go, I have no visibility in house. All the visibility about what's going on is outside of me. And I need to have that intelligence to help me make better security decisions and better protect my network. Now it's pretty common, right? You, you know, most companies, many companies hire, uh, security operation centers and other external parties to monitor for themselves because they can't possibly see everything that's going on or really anything that's going on um, and need to have that kind of uh, data and intelligence to properly protect themselves. Um, and and that, that, that was quite interesting. And now I, uh, I consult typically with early stage or, or uh, startup companies um, in their, uh, in, to help them achieve their, their security goals. So that's the history of my career. Yeah, well, Dave, Dave that's, uh, it's uh, it's been it's been pretty pretty exciting, and I know uh, you and I got to know each other when you were uh, when you were involved with with doing that first outsourcing of security at uh, at Merrill. I, I, I was struck by one of the comments you made uh, about putting the, the the first Morgan Stanley website online, and it and it uh, the fact that you had to speak with executives, and that was very. Uh, in order to, to, to get them to, to trust that it would be safe to, to put these, you know, this information online. And, and that's very similar to a lot of the conversations that, uh, that we're having today with, with companies that are, that are looking to connect their, their physical assets uh, and, and be able to have you know, visibility into physical processes that they never had, uh, which of course creates a lot of data and exposes a lot of data and, and, uh, you know what? What were some of the uh, the, the the objections and uh, and ways that you were able to uh, to convince executives to you know to have trust in these systems that they had not, they had not seen before? It, you know, it's a good question. So what's really interesting about that about that uh, particular case was um, the desire to use the internet as a media of communication was was purely a business-driven decision. There, there was uh, Stephen Roach, who you'll long remember uh, uh, from Equity Research, 
wanted to publish equity research reports on the internet. He said, this is, this is the way of the future. As you know, that's, that's how it's done now. Very little paper gets published. So we had a business demand. Um, the business executives wanted to understand, you know, what was the reach of the internet? How could this be presented? And then, you know, what were the risks of doing that? Now, um, there were interesting business risks, like um, uh, how would we control access if we wanted to, uh, what uh, some of the equity research was distributed to the public. So there were questions about uh, the, you know, the risk of doing that, uh, perhaps diluting the brand. And then the questions of what if it was compromised? What if our, you know, website was, uh, was, was defaced or hacked in some way? How could we trust uh, that, that we would be protected? And, and so, uh, so the way that we uh, convinced them was going through some detail on uh, the, the kinds of threats, very similar to what you do now. Here are the kinds of threats that occur. Someone could, change the data or someone could upload a program or, you know, somebody could, could get, you know, could get through um, our defenses and find their way inside the core of Morgan Stanley. And so, so very similar to what, what, what one would do now is you would outline here are the threats, here are the countermeasures we would take, here's the care that, uh, that we would, that we would uh, take to manage and monitor the system over the course of time um, and how, how we would be alerted if there were if there were incidents and things like that. And so we built a multi-layered defense, but explained it in terms of the kinds of incidents that occur so they could under understand it. So they, you know, they didn't understand the concept of a firewall or, uh, you know, file monitoring. You know, that's a technical solution to a problem. We talked about the risks that were prevalent um, and what we were doing to, you know, to mitigate them. And that, that was satisfactory. It was a learning experience, uh, being able to explain, you know, to, to, uh, you know, uh, in a number of ways, non-technical audiences, what, what the risks were. And of course, we also had to educate on what the internet was, what interconnectivity meant. People didn't really use the internet at that point for, uh, for commerce or to access their bank accounts or to buy things. Um, so that in itself was kind of an unknown quantity about uh, uh, about what exactly the internet was and why people would use it and why this was an effective mechanism and what it meant to be uh, interconnected. And the interesting thing is, of course, Morgan Stanley had had an internet connection for years, um, but that was a technical choice so that technologists could get software, uh, read technical journals and things like that. It was It was not seen so much as a business tool. Uh, so this is kind of the first time it was, it was, it was brought up as a business tool. And so there was an explanation about uh, what, what that was like. And then um, uh, I think Ed, you and I, uh, I, in fact, I remember uh, at a, at a conference that Mary Meeker invited me to where I talked about security and the internet um, to kind of a bunch of investors. It was, by probably 1986, and a lot of those same questions: Where is this going? Why is this going to make money? Where should we invest in? And I talked about security and um, and some of the kind of the future things that that we would see as both challenges as well as opportunities that the internet was bringing. Well, 
Yeah, it's um, it's it's really amazing how so many so many of these uh, these these same issues and questions just recur, you know, again and again. Uh, how about the the concept of trust? I mean, it, it's it's a recurring theme that in order to go online or in order mm-hmm. to uh, to to adopt a new technology, I mm-hmm. mean, there needs to be a level of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I guess you know what I'm hearing from mm-hmm. you is that you were you're you're making a, a an argument around that in a, in in a couple of areas so first the concept of trust interestingly enough the first computer first well known published uh security criteria uh was called the trusted uh security uh trusted computer security evaluation criteria the word trust was the first word. Um, uh, second is uh, Ken Thompson gave one of the best uh, talks ever on receiving the ACM, uh, one of the ACM, but the highest ACM award. I, I don't remember the name. And the title of his, his paper, uh, which you can download and find, is called Reflections on Trusting Trust. And uh, at that time, that you know that word was used quite. Uh, it was it was it was important to use the word trust because you had to make a determination about could I trust this component? Could I trust the implementation that I've implemented? And how would I evaluate uh, the trustworthiness? I I think that um, we could go back to those those principles some more and and think about. Um, uh, you know, various components we have and, and not, uh, and not define it as I've implemented this set of technology, um, or, uh, or these components or, or even that, um, you know, I've, uh, my, my staff has certifications or I've, I've, I've been audited and my audit is okay, but, but more fundamentally is, um, you know, what are all the, what are all my components? What is the business, the business uh, um, processes or the, or the, or the business that I'm, that I'm operating in my environment? And have I defined the, the, the kinds of trust levels and the, and the interact and the, and the, and the trust between the different components that I feel comfortable engaging in that business? With the kind of monitoring um, that lets me know whether that trust is maintained on a day-to-day basis, because one of the you know you know one of the most interesting things about the world of security is that trust is very dynamic, and so uh, a configuration, a setup, and a uh, a, uh, a method of protection that I've implemented um, today may not be trustworthy tomorrow for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and I have to, um, I have to be vigilant, uh, and, and keep an eye on it and make sure, uh, that, that, that trust is maintained. I thought that's one of the most interesting 
comments that you 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 made to me uh, about this idea of risk being a you know a dynamic uh, a, a dynamic challenge, right? And that's something, of course, that makes security really interesting, but it also makes it uh, you know hugely uh, hugely difficult to manage. Uh, and of course, as as things get more more and more connected, uh, that that ends up being a um, you know, a, a, a big challenge. I, I'd like to pivot a bit to the, to the yeah. role of, of governance uh, and uh, privacy and regulations. And, and you'd mentioned that, you know, when you were at Merrill, you were, uh, you had the role of chief privacy officer, and this has moved, largely uh, been moved into a corporate council role. But we have uh, legislation, GDPR is, is coming into effect later this year in Europe. Uh, how, as, how have you worked with uh, governance and, 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 and privacy rules uh, in, in the context of trying to match you know, business demands and, and, and business agility with the, the challenges of regulatory strictures or constructs that may not necessarily be uh, you know, designed to uh, promote the most agile business pro processes or the most flexibility in the business, and and then of course you have to deal with budgets that are that may not also be that uh, uh, that forgiving for for all of the requirements that are placed on you. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I've worked in a lot of aspects of technology. There's never enough money for anything for everything that you want to do, whether it's security or privacy or building a trading system. So, um, so it's all it's all out what you do with money. You know, I I believe that the privacy uh, regulations, privacy legislation, are actually doing quite a bit to help people think about security. Uh, and let me tell you why. It's probably you're probably thinking that's an odd statement, um, but I think it's true. So, so what's the essential element of privacy? The essential element of privacy is putting into the hands or at least the wishes of the of the individuals uh, which could be business but but most privacy regulations are targeted for about uh, targeted for information about individuals what privacy legislation does is it puts into the it requires companies to follow the wishes of the individuals who that the data is about their wishes for the use of that data. And that's a very powerful statement. So, so what it means, it means that the, the corporation can't make all the decisions about the uses of the data. Um, one is it, the individual's wishes need to be granted. And two, the corporation needs to protect that data as a custodian, right? They're bound to protect it. And so, and so, and all the privacy legislation is, you know, it's kind of, when you boil it down, uh, it, it's very, it's all very similar, right? There's the, 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 the right of the person to specify how their information will be used, the right to see it, the right to modify it if it's incorrect, um, the right to be notified if it's, uh, if it's uh, been breached in a way, the obligation on the custodian to protect it. Uh, GDPR looks like that, HIPAA, uh, privacy rule and breach notification rules look like that. GLBA in some pieces uh, look look like that. And you know, if you kind of look across the world, they all kind of look the same way. 
What's great about that is then as a corporation, when you, when you have these regulations to file, you now have some obligations. I have to protect this data, a bunch of security things you need to do. Um, I need to follow the will of the owner of that data, or at least the provider of the data. So I need to build constructs to do that, to collect their wishes, to follow it. But you could apply that to corporate data, right? If you follow the same thing and you said, hey, you business unit that owns this data, I'm technology on the screen, you business unit, if you, I want you to tell me um, your wishes uh, for how this data is to be used and I'm gonna protect it as a custodian, I'm gonna follow your wishes. It's just another set of requirements, right? People think about the ownership of data, uh, whether it's business data or private data, as uh, I, wanna, I wanna provide my rules or my wishes for that data and you custodians have to, have to implement my wishes and, and protect the data and you have to tell me when you don't do it very well and there might be penalties on you if, if, you, if, you, if you don't, particularly if you're very negligent. And HIPAA, for example, has escalating penalties um, if the custodian of the health data is found to be negligent in their protection versus just, you know, sort of incompetent, right? But, but actually negligent. They knew there was a problem, they didn't do anything about it. It's a, it's a it, you know, I believe that's a hugely important aspect. And I, you know, and I applaud government for taking strong action around the protection of private data. And I and I'm concerned when when governments begin to not put the you know the rights of the owners of the data, um, the owner sorry the, the 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 rights of the of the will of the people whose data is about them as the controlling aspect around it because I believe that 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 one erodes trust and erodes the foundations the good foundations that. That, that those controls bring and the responsibilities to protect the data bring in general across the, the entire population of the data that that company stewards. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's, um, it, 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 so it really is, it, it is essential to, um, to creating just a, a foundation of, 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 of trustworthiness between organizations and, 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 you know, public organizations and individuals and, mm-hmm. and companies. That's, uh, yeah, and I've, that's, I've been seeing some interesting reactions. So, so for example, I've been including now in contracts in companies that I'm advising, uh, indemnity clauses, uh, modeled after, uh, HIPAA indemnity clauses, um, in non healthcare constructs. So for example, you know, I'm advising some financial services companies that hold data about their clients. That data is being provided to a third party for some useful business reason. Um, I'm now including in those contracts indemnity clauses um, and uh, require what, what one required to protect data, which is typically there, but now also indemnity clauses for things like breach notification, uh, um, credit monitoring, uh, any other damages that might occur because that third party had a breach. That's very new, right? No one ever kind of thought about that before. You know, certainly, uh, you know, 10 years ago, whatever, no one, no one really thought about, hey, if I'm going to have a third party and they're going to be doing something with, 
with data that I'm interested to hold that that they need to take uh, a lot of special care and and have legal indemnity if they don't. Um, and so essentially what I'm doing is I'm extending out to those uh, other organizations, um, you know, the responsibility to protect the data as I have the responsibility to protect it for my, my customers. And I think we'll see more of that. Interesting. Well, now we've got all of these new sources of data that are that are going to be connected. I mean, in uh, you know, in the next several years, we'll have uh, automobile data. Uh, you know, with autonomous vehicles, you have uh, all this data that's being co collected by smart cities and smart buildings. Um, you know, how do you how do you see the uh, number one, the security challenges uh, evolving around that, but also um, just building on your your prior uh, mm -hmm. your 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 the, the you know the prior comments on on data privacy and mm -hmm. and governance is is there a you know are are there frameworks that uh, you know that 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 stakeholders in, you know in systems whether they be governments or or mm -hmm. or or businesses are are going to need to think differently about. Um, I do. So there's a couple of aspects to to that. So one is um, HIPAA's actually got a pretty good framework for the protection of health information and how uh, it needs to be protected, and then um, how it, how it can be de-identified uh, for use in say uh, 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 analytics, right? Because you know. There's, when you collect all this data, there's kind of two things that you do with it. One is personalization, right, which is the forefront of, of the, you know, the growth in, uh, uh, or growth is the wrong word. A company can't be a highly digital company um, without having an extreme amount of personalization. So that's what people want, right? They want, you know, when I'm connected to my, you know, my retailer, I want that retailer to know a lot about me. So it's you know, it, it knows my size and my shipping preferences and the things that I bought because it's great when it when when it offers me things that are tailored to my choices. But it has a lot of personal information about me in order to do that. But I want to be able to know the the how that information is being used. I want to be able to set my privacy preferences for it. And 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 the the HIPAA regulations are actually quite good at specifying obligations there. The second piece is how that data might be used in mass, right? So you de-identify it in some way, and then companies use it to, um, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, you know, create, you know, general rules about, you know, people in my socioeconomic, uh, you know, class that that can eventually be funneled back into better personalization. That's okay too. It just needs to be need to be done in a way. But interestingly enough, I think that um, we see a broad spectrum of of companies and how they how they think about that. Um, and I can I see it when, for example, I'll talk to to various uh, information uh, or technology suppliers that some of my uh, some of the companies I advise are engaging, and some are quite good. You talk to them, they they understand the privacy needs and the de-identification and security needs. And others, oddly enough, don't have a clue. They'll be like, oh, yeah, all that data you give us, you know, we give, it's accessible to anybody who wants it in our company. And, yeah, we've kind of thought about security, but, you know, 
you know, we we have all of our software over at at Amazon and in their secure. So you know, that's all we need to do. And and so you know, that's a completely kind of clueless approach to both privacy and security. And others are at the at the opposite of the spectrum. And what the what the surprise to me is there is that with all the publicity and and all of the incidents and all of sort of this nature about how people want to have you know control you know they want to use these services but they definitely want them to be secured and have their preferences um, uh, about the use of the data respected uh, how divergent the the different technology uh, and service suppliers are about their attitude towards that and their uh, and it's like a bell curve, right? It's a bunch in the middle, and some are really good, and there's a there's a bunch down at the bottom that that you know haven't read the papers or something. I haven't quite figured out, you know, why uh, why 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 they have that you know the attitude that they do. And so and so in this sort of trust concept that we've been talking about, right? Is is those guys at the lower end of the bell curve are not trustworthy? And they're not trustworthy because they don't understand the ramifications of the service they're providing, the data that they're stewarding, and the implications on on uh, you know how that how that data might be used if either by their staff or or if they were compromised. And you have others that are in the other end of the bell curve that are quite trustworthy given you know their understanding of the issues, how they're thinking about it and what they're what they're doing to to uh, both protect the data and use it in a way that their their customers wish it to be used. How how if you're a I mean if you're a company that's that's looking to embark on uh, you know a re- an expansion of you know of the of the the devices and the systems that you have uh, that are connected. Say you're uh, you have a you know you have a fleet of trucks with. Um, you know, that are generating uh, data via GPS or, uh, you know, doing doing cold chain, uh, you know, tracking, tracking shipping, cargo and logistics. Um, and and you're talking to different providers. Uh, you know, what what would be some of the questions or are there, you know, are there ways if you don't know any if, if you're running a, wa- a warehouse and you don't know anything <laughs> about this stuff? You know, are, what what are, what would be some of the the, the ways to think about? How do you even ask the right questions to, to figure out if folks are if they if they're on the right side the correct side of the curve? Right. Yeah. Well, so so a couple aspects first, right? So internally, they should have a very clear internal policy for the use of the data, um, and they should make that you know they should make that clear across their. Um, you know, across the company and for how and for however the data or on whomever the data is being uh, collected. They should make that very clear. You know, often it, it might be an employment contract and people consent that you know, if you're a driver and you're going to be monitored for speed and distance and, you know, the rest of that kind of stuff. It's it's clear. You might not like it, but it, it's, it's clear. It's just like, you know, you're working with financial services, clearly you have to be fingerprinted and you have to go a background check. You don't like it, well, then don't get the job. But, but you know, it's very clear what you need to do. I think clarity is very important. Two, when you go to your service providers, those who are collecting data, you can ask a couple of simple questions. Like you could say, well, you're collecting data about individuals. That's confidential. Do you have a SOC 2 type 2 
security and confidentiality trust criteria. If they look at you with a blank stare, um, that would be a bad sign. If they, if, they, if they say, no, we don't have it yet, but that's target, we understand what those are, uh, you know, that's a good sign. If they say, yes, we do, that's a very good sign. The, the SOC criteria, although not the most comprehensive criteria, at least gives you an indication that the, that the, um, uh, the company that you're working with has thought about the kinds of security and confidentiality controls that they need to have on their data and have thought about having a third-party attestation uh, to the controls that they've implemented. Um, and they're, they're not, um, they're not overly onerous, but they're not simple either. Uh, but it's a simple way to gauge whether, whether that service provider has even thought about um, or has some expertise in the stewardship of, stewardship of protecting confidential information and securing it correctly. Right, right. So uh, I'd love to just go back a bit to your experience and, and uh, see if, if there were any uh, incidents. I mean, obviously, what you're trying to prevent with, uh, you know, as a as a with a security strategy is is the bad things that happen. But I wonder if there were any uh, incidents or uh, occurrences that that stand out in your mind as as really uh, when the when the proverbial um, birds hit the fan, <laughs> maybe we put it that the way. Proverbial hit the fan. Well, yeah. there's some that, that happened to me and some that that. Uh, you know, that, uh, yeah, it doesn't have know, to happen to, to you. Yeah. yeah it's going to happen to others. Um, you know, uh, just thinking of recent past, right. So, um, uh, the, the specter and meltdown, uh, incidents that, that are just weeks old now, mm. um, I think are quite interesting and they're quite interesting for, for two reasons. One is, um, uh, you know, computers are just made up of layers of software. And uh, even on top of a, of a computer chip, a CPU chip from, from Intel or AMD or JQP, um, you know, there's software that needs to run on those, and they're optimized to do things in a certain way. And those, what those incidents tell you are two things. Uh, one is, is that when the world is based on you know, uh, a small number of manufacturers um, and a small number of operating systems that there are going to be, and there always are going to be um, the potential for security flaws. They're going to be very, very, very widespread. Like that can affect 90% or more of the computers uh, uh, in the world. And, um, and there always are going to be people who, um, are going to be looking to uh, find those those flaws, um, and uh, and a company needs to have a good way to to react to that. Uh, now, uh, what struck me as actually quite good about that one, which is different than the past, is the process kind of worked on it, right? The, the researchers found the flaws. They worked with the major vendors uh, ahead of time, so Amazon, Microsoft, Google major cloud providers, major operating system providers within a very short amount of time 
um, or even before, had an ability to fix the problem. That process, I thought, worked quite well. Um, and you can contrast that to uh, the uh, something completely opposite, where the where where the WikiLeak by Snowden on the collection of security flaws that the NSA had been collecting up over the years, only some of which they had disclosed back to uh, the vendors. Um, and um, um, and so what that what that shows you is one you can't keep a secret forever, and two, uh, although uh, you know in terms of national security, you know government has to make certain decisions. Keeping security flaws a secret or hoping that they'll stay a secret so they can be exploited um, only for say intelligence purposes, but not to affect the the you know everyday commerce and people is a very slippery slope to be on. Right. Um, right. And we need to be very vigilant about that as, as a country and a, and a, and a company. Um, uh, because uh, if, if they're not, if it's not worked correctly, uh, then, um, you know, it kind of puts the whole world at risk. And the, and the, the, the damage from WannaCry, which was based on the discovery of some of these flaws, was quite significant, particularly in the healthcare industry, where hospitals couldn't in, take patients in, at least do the paperwork. Certainly, they can. You even had some trains that were that were shut yeah, down, so public can, infrastructure can, was impacted by this. Yeah, because it, it, it was right. So, um, so, so those, you know, I I found those uh, those instances to be very telling in terms of, you know, a way to. The way that these things can be discovered and and protected, and uh, and you know, general at large, the public protected, versus another way where that you know that wasn't. I think some some thought around the policies there, you know, need to be, you know, they need to evolve, uh, especially given the um, uh, the uh, the interconnections that are growing uh, every day. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the um, when you the one of the interesting incidents I just wanted to wanted to ask you about with the, uh, you know, the Mirai botnet, which was really nothing more than just a, a, a really a nuisance. But this idea that you you have all of these, you know, security cameras and and. Um, you know, EVRs and printers that could be compromised because the manufacturers didn't embed a, an, an easy way to to change the you know the the, the passwords and or and have left these uh, these connected devices mm. exposed. Um, you know how how I'd really like to get to the point of like how do you how do you deal with that if you're just a regular person or you know running say a small mm. business and you have you know and more and more products become connected of course uh, you know how what what's what what so, should so people really do about question. this so, stuff yeah so first of all. Uh, an interesting statistic is something like two-thirds, 66 to 70 percent of all security incidents affect uh, small and medium businesses um, on a total number basis. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a right target. And one of the reasons it's the right target is exactly what you said, is uh, the small and medium business may not have the 
the wherewithal, either in expertise or time or perhaps even even money, uh, to understand uh, you know all the security issues that they face and and come come up with the program uh, to do to to deal with that. Um, I think the answer I think the answer to that is the following. One is that risk is only going to increase, right? Every SMB is looking to automate. Um, they hold data about their customers, about uh, their business. They're putting out more devices, uh, as 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 we talked about, not just printers but cameras and other kinds of of automation. Um, you know, all of which uh, are target. I um, I would encourage them to think about uh, the basic principles of security, um, just like, you know, they probably have, you know, layers of physical security. You know, they got a front door lock and, a, and you know, a lock in maybe the manager's office and a safe. They have to think about their, you know, their technical security the same way. The, you know, kind of you know, these large number of perimeter devices that you need to be isolated from, you know, kind of their ordering and tracking and business systems, which need to be isolated from, you know, their, you know, their, their core data. Um, and, you know, just kind of like, just, just thinking that basic layered approach, but for their technology and then engaging with, um, you know, some local IT, uh, consultants, um, who can who have some credentials to help them to help them uh, implement that? I think would go a very long way to 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 preventing them. The vendors of these systems uh, they need to think more broadly about the protections that they've uh, built into them. Um, I think that it's bad practice um, if they create a device and um, you know, it's a static password in it or a static key that are going to put on 100,000 devices that they're going to deploy all over the world and think that no one's going to discover that um, because because they are, right? And and they're discovering them in all kinds of things, not just in, in devices that business are deploying, but scary enough in the devices that they're buying for their children, right? You know, uh, talking dolls and things like that that are internet connected that have a speaker on all the time with poor security without a privacy practice, without any statement from the vendor about what they've done to implement it. A consumer should stay away from those if they can't read something on the package about how the information is protected, how the device is protected. Um, and so to me, it's almost like an ingredient. You know, the FDA makes you makes a company put, uh, you know, the ingredients on the list before you can buy food, electronic devices should have a statement of security on them um, that are going to be connected. So you can read it and you can say, okay, you know, this thing's connected, you know, they've got, you know, some kind of protection on this and, you know, they've got a way to update it when it's, when it's found to be flawed. Minimum criteria that, that should be on a label. That that makes so much sense too, given given all of these uh, these connected mm -hmm. devices. Um, so I think we're we're coming up to the uh, to the end of our our, our a lot of time here. And but I wanted to just ask if you if you could share any any resources for for people that um, you know when somebody asks you you know how how do I get how do I get a little bit smarter about about 
you know, how to, how to mm -hmm. secure my business and, and, and how to secure mm -hmm. my life. Are there, are there any, uh, any resources you could point people to? Um, so for steering your life, the Times tech blog uh, has, uh, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, all the major newspapers uh, have this, but I read, I read the New York Times has a blog uh, on technology that very frequently has very good advice on how to protect home technology and how to think about uh, the devices uh, um, and, and think about the kinds of devices that I that are being brought into the home or the technology and how to think about security very readable um, with links to other blogs and other resources so so for the for the consumer it, that's that's a great place to go uh, I'm not receiving any compensation from the times for that I just think it's a very readable <laughs> okay. um, if I'm a company here I'm gonna I'm gonna put the, the kind of the weirdest uh, recommendation out that you, you you probably have heard in in a long time. If if I'm a company and I want to understand, especially if I'm an SMB, and I want to understand, hey, what are the elements of a security program that I should you know, be thinking about? The kind of the essential elements. But the best resource I've seen in in a long time is uh, is security criteria. Uh, by the New York State uh, uh, Financial Services Division. It's called the NYDFS 500 Criteria. Um, I'm going to look up the exact title for you. We'll, 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 um, put a, we'll put a link in the show notes for sure. You can put a link. NYDFS. It's probably 15 pages. It's extremely readable. It's like the best government publication I've ever read that just lays out Look, here's things that you should do, right? Put somebody in charge, write some policies, monitor it, worry about your vendors. Um, in a very readable, it doesn't tell you what to do. It's not prescriptive, but you can go, wow, if I don't know what to do, the set of things that I should be thinking about, go read that. You know, a, a consultant could charge you a hundred grand to do, to tell you the same thing. You can just go get this publication. It'll tell you. I, you know, um, it was written to provide a minimum criteria for companies doing financial services work in New York State. Um, but, but when I first saw it like a year ago, I go, this is really well written. And if I was doing security in any industry and I really didn't know where to start or what, if I was like the CEO and I wanted to ask some questions of the guy running technology or lady running security, you could get that out and you go, tell me how we need each of the points in here. You'd have a pretty good handle about whether or not you've, you know, you've gotten, you know, you know, people are paying attention. Well, that's uh, that's really helpful <laughs> advice. I think that's uh, uh, that's going to be the that, that's going to be worth the, the the price of the listen alone for for most <laughs> listeners. So so well, listen, David. It's it's been a you know as always, it's a pleasure and it's it's been uh, you know extraordinarily informative. Uh, you know, I think um, you know I think your insights you know just continue to be. To be relevant and uh, and valuable, and I and I and I really want to thank you for uh, for taking some time to, to speak with us. Uh, no problem, uh, Ed. It's been uh, it's been an interesting journey, and uh, it's going to continue to be interesting for years to come. So, thank you very much. Terrific, and and uh, and for everybody listening, uh, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at uh, Momenta Partners, and and uh, that was our interview with David Bauer, who is a. Uh, 
a manage a managing partner at uh, Sand Hill East. And if you have any further questions, please uh, please reach out to us, and and we'll we'll put links to the uh, to the resources in the show notes as well. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.